0: Hello, and welcome once again to the Tri Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the Tri Doc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Most of my listeners are likely users of Facebook. Some of you have asked me why I'm not on that platform and why I don't use it as a means of broadening my reach amongst potential listeners or clients for Tri coaching. This is a fair question and one for which I have a simple answer. Basically, I can't get on there. It seems as though I've been ensnared in some kind of filtering snafu that deprives normal users like myself the ability to use the platform in exchange for Facebook to be better able to keep nefarious baddies off there as well. Now, as far as I can tell, the nefarious baddies still have a pretty healthy presence on Facebook, but here I am as a small business owner and podcast producer incapable of getting on there and unable to contribute to their bottom line, something that I actually do want to do. Now, I understand that this tale of woe is very much a first-world problem and not at all of particular interest to most of you, so I'm not going to belabor the point. I will, however, take the opportunity to do two things before moving on. First, I hope that you'll read the excellent reporting by Kashmir Hill in the New York Times on this matter. Ms. Hill interviewed me at length for background on her story, and I was amazed at how many others she found that were in the same boat as I was. I was further amazed at how Facebook doesn't seem to care about any of our plights and continues to stonewall any efforts to provide resolution. I'll include a link to Kashmir Hill's story in the show notes. Second, I'd like to make an offer to any of you who might have some tech savviness, in particular with managing social media. In return for an established, lasting presence on Facebook that I can leverage to try and grow this podcast as well as my TriDoc coaching business, I am prepared to provide a full year of coaching for free. Is this something that interests you? Well, email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, and let's discuss how we can help each other out. For now, though, I continue to count on all of you to help me spread the word. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please, please leave a rating and a review wherever you download the show. And if you would tell other folks who might be interested as well, that that would be a really big help as well. Word of mouth is really my only means of getting the show to more listeners at this point, and I am grateful for any help that any of you might give me in that regard. On the show today, Lance Panagouti was a professional triathlete before settling in the Denver area, where he now owns and operates without limits production, a local company that puts on numerous triathlons, exterra races, and running races. Lance took some time out of planning his next event to talk to me about all that goes on into planning and putting on a race, and his thoughts on the future of the sport, both at the local level and beyond. The triathlete Routard once again stays within the confines of the state of Colorado, but this time it's for a whole different kind of event. A few weeks ago, the inaugural SBT gravel race took place in Steamboat Springs, and it was a truly amazing event. I'm joined by a friend and colleague who raced as well, and we provide our thoughts on what I'm sure will become a must-do event. First, though, I have a medical issue to consider. Most triathletes have at some point or another become afflicted either by injury or overuse with pain in some area of their body that led them to seek the help of a physiotherapist in rehabilitation and to quickly return to activity. As I have come to know from personal experience, these healthcare professionals are really indispensable in helping get an athlete back to what they want to be doing quickly and in good health. A couple of times... Physiotherapists have suggested dry needling as a modality to help with my healing, and I've always wondered what was behind this type of treatment and why they're often so excited about it. Well, I thought the time was ripe to wonder no more. So today, I look at the evidence and let you know if this treatment is something you should consider the next time your PT suggests it. That's coming up right now. Triathlon and injuries, unfortunately, go very much hand in cast. As anyone who trains and races in any kind of endurance events will know all too well, it's not if you will get injured, but rather when. And as the driven, somewhat pathologically motivated athletes that we are, rest and rehabilitation are antithetical to our beings, and therefore incredibly hard to do, even when it is in our best interests. Thankfully, many of us, when faced with the occasional overuse or unexpected traumatic injury, have a physiotherapist that we can turn to in order to get back on track and return to training as soon as possible. We rightfully place our trust and rehab in the hands of these knowledgeable and skilled practitioners, but occasionally I've come across suggestions from even the best PTs that left me wondering, is there any science behind that, or were they making a well-meaning recommendation based more on anecdote and personal experience than on rigorous evidence? One such example that I want to tackle on this episode is dry needling. When I was first rehabbing after my hip surgery several years ago, and then after my shoulder surgery a couple of years later, two different physiotherapists convinced me that dry needling was the best thing since anti-inflammatory medications for managing myofascial pain and joint injuries. They were quite passionate about it, and in both cases, I was willing to give it a try. Now, my personal experiences with dry needling were really not at all positive. I found the sessions to be excruciatingly uncomfortable and not really all that helpful with the problems in either the short or long term. But my N of 1 sample size is really insufficient to base a recommendation on, so I decided to dig into the medical literature and see what's out there on this popular physiotherapeutic technique. Now, if the concept of dry needling is foreign to you or sounds like acupuncture, let me spend just a couple of minutes clearing things up. First and foremost, dry needling is not acupuncture, although the needles used in both are the same. Acupuncture is a form of pretty ancient Chinese medicine, in which needles are inserted into specific areas of the body in order to alter the flow of qi. The development of acupuncture was based on the belief that everyone possesses qi, which is a healing energy, and that when illness or injury strikes, this represents a blockage of qi. Acupuncture needles, placed far from the site of injury or pain, are believed to alter the flow of qi and eventually lead to improved health. Now, there has been some medical studies into the efficacy of acupuncture, and some modest benefits have been reported in some types of ailments, but this is a subject for another episode. Now, as opposed to acupuncture, dry needling is a much more recently developed therapy and involves insertion of needles directly into the area where injury and pain are located. The central thesis around dry needling is that under conditions of injury or restricted mobility, trigger points form, and that these are hyper-irritable spots in skeletal muscles that are associated with a hypersensitive palpable nodule in a taut band. Now, dry needling involves the insertion of the needle into these trigger points in order to overstimulate them, cause a spasm of the muscle, and then a relaxation and release of the trigger point that is purportedly then associated with a decrease in pain and an improvement in overall function. And there is no question that dry needling is associated with the first part of this equation, that is to say the spasm and twitching of the affected area, because this is visible and palpable to the practitioner. I have no doubt that this is one of the reasons that physiotherapists like dry needling so much, because they can see and feel a response to their actions in real time. Unfortunately, the spasm is frequently very uncomfortable for the patient, Although, if a short and long-term benefit were going to be seen, then I'm wagering that this pain would be more than worth it. So what then does the evidence say? Well, I performed a search of the medical and physiotherapy literature to see what I could come up with, and nothing that I found really rationalizes the exuberance with which dry needling is advocated. Dry needling has been studied principally in the management of neck, shoulder, and low back pain, though there are some studies on more peripheral limb ailments as well. For back and neck pain, the areas that have received the most attention, studies on dry needling have generally not shown any benefits when compared to other modalities of treatment with respect to improving overall functional outcomes. There has been some evidence of dry needling conferring some benefits in patients with neck pain, specifically in the early periods of after treatment, and this is generally within a few weeks, but longer-term outcomes have not maintained any of those early benefits. When results from different studies on different areas of the body have been pulled together into larger meta-analyses, the authors concluded the following. Very low quality to moderate quality evidence suggests that dry needling performed by physical therapists is more effective than no treatment, sham dry needling, and other treatments for reducing pain and improving pressure pain threshold in patients presenting with musculoskeletal pain in the immediate to 12-week follow-up period. Lower quality evidence suggests superior outcome with dry needling for functional outcomes when compared to no treatment or sham needling. However, no difference in functional outcomes exists when compared to other physical therapy treatments. Evidence of long-term benefit of dry needling is currently absent. Now another systematic review published in a different journal and written by different authors found pretty similar results, namely that dry needling does show some benefit when compared to no treatment or to sham needling, but all the benefits are in pain relief and all the benefits disappear after a short period of time. One final systematic review that is worth reporting relates to the use of dry needling specifically for shoulder pain and dysfunction. A small, number of, a small number of studies were available to compile for this review, but the authors were able to look at the results across almost 500 patients, and in these studies, dry needling was not supported as a therapy for this indication. Essentially, there was no evidence of benefit whatsoever. Now, there are some important caveats to be considered when interpreting the findings of all of these studies. First, the individual studies are themselves very small. And small studies have two problems with them. The first is that you can often find an effect that's not real, but rather is there only by chance, but is magnified because you had such a small study group. While alternatively, a second potential problem is that there may actually be a small effect that really exists, but if you don't study a large enough group of subjects, you're simply not going to find it. Now, since the majority of dry needling studies fail to show much of a benefit, one could potentially argue that the studies were simply too small to show the real effects of this therapy. A second important concern is that in most of these studies, dry needling is compared to no treatment, or placebo. Only in a few selective studies is dry needling compared to alternative therapies. Now, it really isn't fair to compare a new therapy to nothing at all, or to a placebo. What you really want to do is compare the therapy to the current standard. Sure, Therapy X might be fantastic compared to nothing at all, but if it pales in comparison to the current standard therapy, then it really isn't all that great and certainly isn't that much of an advance over what we have. With studies of dry needling, many studies do show some small benefit when compared to no treatment or to sham needling, which is basically just inserting needles into an area but not into trigger points but almost none compared to the current standards, and in the few that do, dry needling didn't tend to show much benefit. So where are we left with respect to dry needling? I think insofar as the medical literature is concerned, the answers have been pretty consistent. Dry needling may have some short-term benefits for patients with neck or back pain when compared to no treatment at all, but those benefits fade over time or when dry needling is compared to other standard therapies. Still, it's pretty hard to find a PT who doesn't believe pretty strongly in the benefits of this therapy. While part of this is likely due to what I described earlier, I think that many also believe ardently that in their hands, the therapy is really beneficial. It's kinda hard for me to argue against that and I'm not even gonna try. I can only say that in some, the evidence simply does not support those kinds of assertions. Still, if you are a patient who has had this done to them and feel that it helps you, then by all means, I'd suggest that you continue. The medical evidence, after all, is not definitive in this matter, and even if it was, there are always some who will benefit, even if most will not. Still, for me, I'm going to pass on this. My personal experience, as well as the preponderance of medical evidence, suggests that it's more painful than it really is helpful. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Email it to me at tri-doc at icloud.com. My guest today is Lance Panaguti. Lance is well known in the Denver and Boulder areas and started in the endurance industry as a junior triathlete back in 1996. After finishing a degree in history and classics from the University of Colorado, he turned his attention back to the triathlon world, where he raced as an ITU professional triathlete for three seasons. After having raced around the world, he wanted to bring those experiences back home and deliver an improved athlete experience for all levels of racers, beginners to veterans. He started Without Limits Productions, a local race event production company, in 2007 with his brother. Since their inception, they have produced over 400 events, 150 of which are triathlons. Lance took some time out of preparing for the Outdoor Divas race to speak with me. Welcome to the podcast, Lance.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.
0: Well, I'm really interested in talking to you because I've wanted to get a race director on the program for some time. uh, As a participant in many of your races and many of the other ones around here at the Denver and Boulder area, Uh, I have a sense of what's involved in putting a triathlon on, but I clearly don't have any sense whatsoever of what's really involved. So can you give us... Uh, and my listeners, w- w- you know, some idea of how much planning, how much forethought, and and what are the kinds of th- obstacles you have to overcome in order to put on a quality event uh, at the sprint or Olympic distance?
1: So all our races, we do pretty much the multitude of races in the sport. We do sprint triathlon, Olympic distance, half distance. We do off-road, Xterra branded events. And really, every race is a little bit different. But when it comes down to it, putting on a race is all about relationship building at every level. I mean, it starts with really being creative, kind of broaching the subject with the town and building a relationship with the permitting entities and kind of going through the hoops. Every town is a little bit different. They have different nuances to their permitting applications, but you're kind of just uncovering one step after another step, and you don't really know what the next step is with a new race until you have those conversations with the towns. I think a good example is we've been doing this for 12 years, and I'm working on a new event next year. It's actually a gravel triathlon, which is probably a whole different question and conversation, but it's a town I've worked with before, so I'm a little familiar with their permitting process, but I also dip into county roads. I dip into state roads a little bit. So every entity you're dealing with is a different process and comes with different challenges. But that's literally just the back-end operation, the porta-potties, the medical, all that good stuff. I would say there's two sides of a triathlon production. There's the back-end, what you don't see, booking the porta-potties, getting the equipment out there like bike racks, swim buoys, lining up your staff and volunteers. And then there's the forward-facing aspect of it. And the forward-facing is really that interaction with the athlete, launching the event, branding it, communication, marketing, what's the t-shirt look like, what's in the goodie bags, awards, all of that fun stuff. And I'd say most of the best companies I've seen around the country, they split those segments into two different departments or really have two partners kind of overseeing each side of the operation.
0: Now, is this enough revenue uh, to make this like your full time job?
1: It is now. I mean, we produce this year, it'll be 40 events. And that's a mix of triathlon events, road cycling, aquathon and cyclocross. It took about four to five years to get to that stage, though.
0: Okay. And when you look at an event, which part of it gives you the most difficulty in terms of the planning? Is it finding the right location for the swim? Is it planning out the right route for the bike?
1: So this year we'll have 10 triathlons. And I always tell people if we were able to produce every triathlon we ever tried to or thought of, we'd probably have over 50 triathlons. And it really comes down to a magic combination of all these factors coming together of it's a great swim venue. It's a bike course that doesn't have a lot of residential impacts. That right there, I'd say is your biggest hurdle, especially in Colorado. There's so much residential growth in the last geez, eight to 10 years. It's made some courses a lot more challenging of what was rural in the past is now suburbia.
0: Right. I mean, that's what that was what put the nail in the coffin for the races out at the Aurora Reservoir because the encroachment of all of the suburban housing around that, that, that those roads are no longer rural.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: So we've just lost those races, and that was a really nice venue for racing, unfortunately. Um, when you come to race day, I, I would imagine the swim brings race directors the most angst. Is, is that true?
1: It does just because that's when the most accidents can happen. I was breathe a sigh of relief when the swim is over and our accountability reports come in and everything everyone's accounted for. The next kind of sigh of relief is after the bike course. Usually our run courses, at least for our races, are close to traffic. So it's like every segment of the race, when all the athletes are accounted for, you breathe a little bit easier.
0: Yeah. So give me a sense of uh... – what goes into one of these races? Like when do you start with the planning and sort of give me the timeline of how things run in terms of, uh, you know, from the, from the thought process of, of actually, Hey, this is what we're going to do all the way through to race day.
1: So that timeline has kind of gotten expanded over the years. When we first started putting on races for a triathlon event, it was a year out. So if we found a venue, we liked, we started the process from concept to execution exactly one year out. Now, I feel that's a little bit rushed. Some race directors might disagree with me. But for this new event, we're working on the gravel try. We've had the concept and been scouting the venue for the last three to four months. Now we're kind of going through the reach out permitting process and getting ready to launch it if everything goes right a year out. So in total, we're about a year and a half into this.
0: Okay. So you've scouted at the venue. You're about to start the permitting. How long does the permitting process take?
1: Usually you try to get uh, verbal confirmations that things are good to go. And then you actually do the paperwork from a lot of entities and you might not get that final yes until February or March, but you at least already got a verbal six months in advance because you know, with triathlon now, registration for the following year has to open December New Year's, some companies open it on November 1st. Right.
0: And uh, you'll obviously open up registration before permitting is completed, or will you open it up uh, only after you're sure?
1: So uh, unless I have every verbal ready to go that, hey, we've sat down, we've met with the permitting agencies, they signed off on everything. They're just waiting for the official paperwork to come in. Then I'll launch. Okay. If I haven't gotten those verbal confirmations yet, if I haven't sat down with them, I'll wait Okay. because there is nothing worse and to me more damaging to a company's reputation and really the sport than to launch something and then – have a red flag pop up and have to cancel.
0: So I imagine there's a quiescent period. Then once you launch you're you're doing some marketing, which, uh, for you seems to be mostly emails and, uh, Facebook and things like that. And then there must be a period where you're just watching registrations come in. And then I would imagine three to four months before the race, then you have to sort of ramp up in terms of getting things going again.
1: That's pretty accurate. I mean, for us, just because we have so many events, I always tell people February is our lightest month because all the permitting's done, staffing, volunteers are all lined up. I mean, things like awards, t-shirts, sponsorship. they're all ordered, designed. So at that stage, it's all right. We're just waiting to get out there and start actually producing events, which for us is the end of March and, How do
0: you determine if a race is successful? Does it have to sell out or is it, uh, will you give a race a couple of years to sort of gain a reputation to determine if it's something you're gonna stick with?
1: There's a lot of different metrics. I mean, for a smaller venue, for instance, we brought back the Steamboat Lake Triathlon this year. So we hadn't run it for two years. Participation in 2016 dipped to a point that uh, obviously financially wasn't feasible. So we put it back on the shelf brought it back this year and I said when we brought it back my metric for success was not based on the sellout or the profitability was how well it was received again because it was one of those events I truly loved for the beauty of it and just how much fun it was to produce fortunately this year we sold out three months in advance of the race the largest field we've ever had up there and people loved it so there was almost three different buckets of success sold out it made good money and people absolutely loved what we did up there.
0: Um, so give me a sense, like a race like Oktoberfest, which is a local sprint that you run late September, uh, f- uh, that sort of closes out the season here, a uh, local race in Denver, one that you, uh, have run for several years. Is that one kind of on autopilot? Is it something that you know well enough that you have to put in less work or does it require as much work as some of the ones that, uh, are maybe newer?
1: I wish autopilot existed. I mean, I talked about kind of the two faces of an event production, the back end. This year with Oktoberfest, it's our 12th season putting on that race. Then all of a sudden in towns, because of the growth in Colorado, redistricted a lot of the different territory on our bike course. So all of a sudden I had to work with Town of Firestone in some different agencies that I've never had to work with in 12 years before. Same exact bike course, same timelines, but... Someone drew the lines on a town map a little bit different and it completely changed everything around for us. And then to me, I've seen races go on autopilot in terms of what well, we opened up registration. The branding is the same. And to me, they're stagnant. It, I personally, one thing that I love is the branding and the design in just really the life of an event. And to me every year, it should take on a different look and feel. And to me, that's how you keep the sport exciting and keep people coming back.
0: Hmm. Now, we've talked a little bit before uh, we started recording about the New York Times article that came out a couple of weeks ago, talking about the drop or significant drop in registration uh, numbers uh, with USAT. And uh, I talked on the last podcast with Cam Dye about some of the threats to triathlon's future. And you've expressed a, a very different sort of feeling about that. Do you want to kind of express what you have said to me before about how you see the sport as potentially having a much brighter future than some of the doom and gloom that might have been reported? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And I'd literally have coffee with Cam once a month. He's a good friend. And we talk about this very same topic because he's curious. He wants, he wants his kids someday to hopefully do triathlon. And I, I tell Cam, it's like, Hey, I'm not going to sugarcoat it, but I'm very bullish on the sport. If you asked me that same question in 2015 and 2016, I, I wouldn't have had the same answer. I mean, 2014, 2015, the sport definitely in all endurance sports, running, cycling, cyclocross, they all suffered basically a recession. And I knew it was more of a gut feeling than anything else that triathlon was going to pull out of it first. And because we do and produce a lot of different types of sports, I knew each sport had its own challenges. Road cycling has more challenges ahead of it than any other sport, endurance sport out there. But triathlon, I said, you know what, if it can get back to grassroots racing, if it can get back to the local community and be more about the lifestyle of it and the participation aspect of it, it's going to emerge from that recession and we're going to see the growth again. And I can't speak for other areas of the country, but at least in Colorado, I know with our friends Darren and Jill from Racing Underground, which is a competitor, and our own events – When it came to the Colorado scene, we said, you know what? It's a lifestyle. It's about being active. It's about being healthy. And all our marketing, all our branding kind of shifted from this is a super competitive, it's all about the podium, it's all about doing your best time to, hey, I don't care if you're a beginner or you're a veteran racer with 10 Konas under your belt. We're all out here to have a really positive and fun experience in really the same experience, it's really about celebrating what I call the triathlon lifestyle. And when we made that shift in 2016, we sold out every event in 2016. I was fortunate to basically raise our participant caps about 5 to 10% with each venue. We sold out in 2017, 2018, and then I was again able to raise my participant caps a little bit this year. And we're looking at another record sellout year. So I track... Really, first-timers into the sport and the retention rate of, all right, how are these athletes coming back? And really, what I've seen with our events is people move around. One year, they do sprints. The next year, they're doing an Xterra with us. The next year, they're focusing on cyclocross, or it was their time to jump up to the half distance. But they're embedded. It's who they are. It's what they do versus, I mean, you called it out with the New York Times article versus the Iron Man crowd, which one of their biggest challenges is the bucket listers. Right? Yeah. And I think I think one of the biggest obstacles that Iron Man is facing now is you had the baby boom generation. I mean, that's my parents' generation. It really, from 2002 to 2014, they wanted to do an Iron Man. They wanted to check it off their list they were it was the right age their kids were graduated from college they had disposable income they did their ironman but there isn't a big segment of the population behind them to backfill those entries and at the ironman level you've kind of seen that contraction you haven't seen it at the 70.3 level i think the growth and health of 70.3 is still strong but you've seen that at the ironman level of there was a growth of the number of races from 2002 to 2014, and now there's a slight contraction.
0: Yeah, I mean, you raise some excellent points. I, I think, uh, as I pointed out to you earlier, also, I think the WTC had some terrific successes, and that it was a little bit of a double-edged sword. I think that they have uh, a you know a huge marketing uh, you know engine, and that has led a lot of people, especially people who aren't familiar with triathlon, to associate triathlon with Ironman, and they don't necessarily appreciate that these local races uh, at the Sprint and Olympic. Distance are also triathlons and are just as much, uh, uh, you know, uh, just as much of an accomplishment. Um, and and for me, the barriers to entry into the sport remain this notion that Ironman is the you know the only triathlon, but but also the cost. Um, and I love showing up at triathlons and seeing people on. Just, uh, you know, hybrid bikes or mountain bikes and just doing these short races, because that tells me that there are still people coming in and still people who are going to be potentially taking the step up eventually to doing longer races. But, you know, how, how much do you encounter that or how much do you hear from individuals who might you know reach out to you and say, you know, I'm interested in this, but I don't know if I can, you know, if I can do it with what bike I have or et cetera.
1: Yeah, no, to kind of go back a little bit, I I will say, because I've been very, very critical of WTC over the years, but they serve a very specific role in the sport. I mean, sure, they're the 800-pound gorilla in the room, but I'm never going to get a triathlon on NBC. So the fact that someone in the regular community looks at triathlon and only thinks of triathlon as Ironman or that big race over in Hawaii, that's not a bad thing, because... At a certain level, Ironman's able to expose the sport, even if it's just their distance of the sport, to millions of people that me and all my other race director friends putting on local events never could. That's a good thing. It's almost my job to feed those athletes and make them fall in love with triathlon. And if I do my job well, those people are naturally going to gravitate to the Ironman distance. I mean, there's going to be an attrition level, but if I can get someone into my super sprint, all women's tribella event, they're naturally going to fall in love with the sport, do the sprint distance, then do a co-ed race. And I've watched it over the years. I've tracked women do our super sprint distance, which we kind of added last minute one year, and it was so successful. And then I've watched them go all the way up into our half distance. And I'm sure some of those athletes have gone on to the full Ironman distance after that. I mean, to me, that's what makes the sport successful.
0: And I look at some of the things, like I sent you that article, uh, about a race that had folded and then was resuscitated, uh, in, uh, I can't remember where it was. I think it was in Michigan and, uh, they had some really novel ideas and you mentioned the the gravel triathlon you're looking at putting on. And I mean, it's those kinds of new ideas, I think that are really going to help keep this sport going and, and bring new people into it. Um. What do you think, uh, what do you Like, I mean, the gravel triathlon sounds like a terrific idea. I mean, I can't think of a better way. It's sort of a, you know, in between the Xterra and the road triathlon. I mean, where do you think other areas are for growth in the sport?
1: If you look at when participation kind of plateaued and I talked about that recession earlier, it was right around 2012, 2014. And what did you see rise up at the time? All the fun runs, the color runs, the bubble runs. I mean, you name it, they popped up. Where are those events today? They're gone. It was a fad. And a lot of my friends wanted, a, wanted us to get into that segment of event production. I said, no, it's not sustainable because at their core, people are competitive. So I said, you know what? The events we're putting on right now are super competitive. All those fun runs are as non-competitive as can be. So I looked at it as a pendulum kind of swinging. And I said, you know what, we're going to incorporate some of those elements, some of those fun aspects into our events because they're just cool. And I would love it for myself as a hardcore competitive racer, but we're not going to fully commit to non-competitive events. So a few of the things we did, we added a slip and slide to our finish line for a few events. It's a big inflatable slip and slide. You finish our X-Terra race, you're covered in sweat and mud and dust from the run course hit a slip and slide, there's no better way to cool off at the end of the event. Our women's event, we have a couple bubble machines. I actually had them for my wedding. And women literally crossed the finish line at our all-women's triathlon through a field of bubbles. I mean, to me, they were small elements that made the experience, just enhanced the experience and made it memorable for the athletes.
0: I'm really glad to see that, uh, you know, Denver and Boulder have this burgeoning uh, local triathlon scene. And I, I'm optimistic for the future of the sport as well. I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, it can keep growing. And uh, I would hate to see uh, the doom and gloom come to pass. So,
1: And I think a little bit of the doom and gloom is we look at those stats and we say, all right, here's the number of participants we've lost. Here's the number of races we lost. But really, I think it was a supply and demand issue over the years. And I think Ironman would echo this, too, of when things were good, when races were selling out, race directors kind of went buck wild. Someone who was producing two races started producing five, six. If every race director did that, I mean, which kind of happened at the local 5K, 10K level, we just had a supply issue. So races weren't filling out. So the perception was, well, things aren't healthy. They're healthy. People are participating. But there were just too many options out there. So, natural supply and demand, I, I think in 2016, 2017, we saw a correction of that. I actually self corrected from the number of events we were producing. We put a couple on the shelf, and then things were looking good again. We just outpaced the growth.
0: Well, one thing I would suggest, and I, you know, as a dad with three kids who love to do triathlons, there's not a lot of opportunities for kids' triathlons. And if there was ever a way to get kids into the sports, it's through doing those kids' tries. I guess they probably aren't moneymakers because they tend to be short events and they don't charge as much. But, uh, I mean, that's a hook. And I wish more people put them on because uh, they really are something that I know as a family we like to do. So mm-hmm. that would and, be And I would look.
1: tell other race directors listening to this? Pool swims. The more pool swims out there, that is the gateway into the sport. Because for so many people, the biggest challenge is swimming. And to go from off the couch, I'm a 5K runner, I'm a cyclist, to getting in the open water with all those other people around you, it is the most intimidating jump in the world. But if you can transition those people from a runner to a pool swim triathlete, someone does a pool swim, I guarantee they're going to have their eye on an open water triathlon after that. Yeah,
0: I completely agree. Well, Lance uh, Panagudi is uh, a well-known director of a large race series uh, by Without Limits Productions here in the Denver and Boulder area. And he's getting ready to do the Outdoor Divas race this weekend. And I thank him so much for taking some time to join me on the TriDoc podcast. Thanks again, Lance.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: And now it's time for the Triathlete Routal, when I am joined by a guest to provide a review and insights on a popular race, usually one of the triathlon variety, but for this episode we're going to mix things up just a little bit, because joining me today is fellow emergency physician Catherine eastley Krugoff from Boulder, Colorado. Catherine is not a triathlete, but considers herself a serious bike enthusiast, be it mountain, road, gravel, cyclocross, townie, all bikes, because as she likes to say, bikes are the best. Now, rather than hold her non-swimming and running against her, I've invited Catherine on to talk about the inaugural SBT Gravel Ride that took place a couple of short weeks ago in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, that both she and I partook in. The SBT Gravel was a huge success and an activity that I and several of my triathlon teammates undertook as a way of broadening our horizons, but it's definitely something that I wanted to tell all of you about so that you might consider signing up for the event in 2020. Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: It is a pleasure to have you on board. I'm always happy to have non-triathletes on so that we can try our best to try and convince you to get into the pool. I know that you've been healing up from uh, a clavicle fracture. You know I've never heard of someone breaking anything in the pool, so more reasons to consider it.
2: Yes, um, I will consider it. (laughs) How about
0: that? <laughs> All right. So uh, you and I both uh, took part in the SPT gravel. Unfortunately, neither of us knew that we were going to be doing it until after the fact. So we didn't get to see each other there. Uh, right. However, uh, we both uh, really enjoyed it. So let's talk a little bit about this event. Um, did it sign up quickly? Is it something that people are going to have to uh, get in on very early when the registration opens up in the next uh, couple of months?
2: Uh, absolutely. I, uh, I don't know exactly how many days it took to fill, but I know that it was definitely less than a week, with the exception of they opened up some extra women's spots because they believed that they wanted more um, equality in women's cycling. And that was a way that they thought that they could bring in um, other women into the race.
0: Yeah, and that was really a, a great effort by the organizers. They made a huge deal out of having uh, an equal uh, pro field, both in women and men, and also having uh, equal prize money. Uh, when uh, the race initially sold out, I believe it was in six days, uh, there was a gross inequality in men versus women. So they went out of their way to open up all kinds of extra slots to allow for um uh, I can't even remember how many more women it was, but they ended up, I think I uh, want to say they had 30 to 40% women uh, that participated, which is really, really admirable for them, and uh, it was uh, made for a great day for everybody, I think. But yes, uh, once the registration opens up, do make sure that you sign up quickly if it's something you're interested in. I know that uh, they are planning on giving uh, return uh, participants Uh, some kind of advanced registration, so the number of slots that will be available for next year could be significantly smaller, so I would expect it to sell out even sooner. Uh, Where did you stay uh, in Steamboat, uh, and how long were you there in town?
2: So we were in town. We came up uh, Friday afternoon um, and stayed through Tuesday, actually, to make a good like five day weekend out of it. Um, I was able to stack a bunch of my shifts before and after, which is kind of the beauty of what we do. Um, and we originally planned on camping the whole time, but we have some friends that live up in steamboats a week, uh, stayed with them the night, um just preceding the race and the night after the race so that we could maybe get a little bit better sleep. Um, But the camping up there was beautiful and unreal. And I think that that would have been a way to make it, um, I don't know, even more majestic, maybe even more of an adventure. Um, But it was the the town was like just had completely opened itself up to the event. Yeah.
0: And I. You're so right. I, I've been to Steamboat in the winter to ski. It's the first time I've ever been up there in the summer, and it really is spectacular. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of Colorado. Uh, it uh, really lends itself well to spending you know, several days before or after the race in order to, to take part. Uh, I know several people who went with families and did exactly what you did and took uh, days on either side of the event. Uh, in terms of lodging, uh, they made uh, some pretty good deals available through the race itself. Uh, I know that the uh, uh, Wyndham Resorts, which has a lot of properties uh, in the mountain area, they offered uh, pretty reasonable discounts I think I was able to get 20% off uh, booking a condo and we stayed uh, it was me and three other friends we rented a condo for a couple of nights and it ended up being quite reasonable on a per night basis per person Uh, and we had really nice accommodations the one thing I would say is that most of the accommodations available tend to be around the ski hill itself and the ski hill is about four miles from the start and finish of the ride So if you are going to stay in those kinds of accommodations, you have to do what I did, which is get up a little bit earlier to ride the four miles downhill to the start. But then after your day is done, you've got that four miles uphill to get back to your place. Now, if you did the shorter courses, maybe not such a big deal, but I can tell you after the 140 mile day that I had, it was uh, less than something I really wanted to do. So uh, if you can get spots in the old town itself, that's closer to the start finish. And I know there is quite a bit of lodging in the town itself. Um, that is actually what I would recommend. Uh, staying in town itself and being closer to the start finishes is something that I would uh, try to do next time if I was going to do it again. All right, let's... Uh, change our uh, focus to the course itself. Uh, Now three different options are available and I understand from uh, some email exchanges with the race organizers that they're going to do the same thing for next year. So there's the green course which is a 37 mile course the blue course, which was 100 miles, and then the black course, which was 140 miles. Uh, almost, I want to say, uh, the blue and black course were something like 80 to 90% on gravel roads. Does so that seem about right to you, Catherine?
2: Yeah, I would say uh, about that
0: much. Yeah, and I can't comment on the green course. I, I didn't actually see how much of it, but I think more of the green course percentage-wise was on gravel. Um so let's uh, just talk about the blue and black courses. Uh, we'll focus first on the blue course because that's what you did. And the, and I should say that the blue and black course are identical. The additional 40 miles of the black course really takes you on an additional loop that goes a little bit south. So let's just start with 100 miles of the blue course. Uh, let's talk sure. a little bit about that.
2: So it, it starts with like a neutral rollout um, through town, which I think is always fun to have a, a nice neutral rollout because it, it kind of... Uh, allows people to kind of settle in as opposed to having like this mass pandemonium at the very beginning. Um, uh, and I think it's a good place to, before you get to the actual gravel, because I think it was maybe a couple miles on um, on like paved roads, uh, where it allowed like the really faster and more aggressive people to move up towards the front and the um, the less aggressive riders to move towards the middle and the back of the pack so that once you started getting on those roads that, um, uh, where like rider skill or ability or aggressiveness was going to be a little bit different. It was nice to kind of already be in your zone. Right. Um, then we basically turned onto these beautiful, uh, rolling gravel roads, um, where, uh, let's see, first it was like a little bit of a climb through what was a little bit of deep, not deep, um, but, uh, you know, not your, like, hard gravel surface that's like a dirt road that's basically concrete or asphalt, but, a, you know, a pretty technical um, climb where there was a little bit of deeper pockets of gravel and sand. And then onto some double track uh, rolling hills that just seemed like you were riding through ranch land it was beautiful just up down turns very very interesting
0: yeah there um, were there were a couple of things that i uh remembered from the start that i wanted to mention the, the first uh, exactly as you just said some of the roads early on and again in the middle i think and this was this was as you left town heading up towards Steamboat Lake, and then when you came back from Steamboat Lake towards town, some of the roads had this, like you said, it was sort of a sandy gravel kind of consistency. Right. And you definitely... It was
2: a little bit deeper. Yeah, you had
0: to keep your wits about you. I mean, I didn't see anybody, you know, crash, and I certainly never felt like I was going to crash, but you definitely had to keep your wits about you. Now, the Black uh, Course folks headed out earlier. We headed out... Do you remember how far ahead we... Five minutes. Five minutes so we got yeah. caught by the faster moving blue course folks probably I, I 10 or 15 that. miles in and I will tell you it was like a freight train coming through and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a decent rider and I ride fairly quickly, but those guys came through so aggressively and they came through on a part where some of that loose, sandy gravel was and they would, right. they, as soon as they would pass you, they would cut right in. And I tell you, it was, uh, yeah, it wasn't comfortable. That, yeah, that was the I least comfortable that. part of the day.
2: I agree. So I was actually in the, um, I was probably in the first chase group with the blue course, um, And coming off of like not even three months out from my clavicle, um, I, that's, I really just kind of like let people go in that instance because I felt like the, it really was this area where the deepest, the deepest and most technical sand slash gravel riding was happening at a point where there was multiple different riders of varying abilities across the road. Um, but, uh, you know, once, you know, I think once I moved through that section, um, both the section where we were overlapping riders, um, uh, and moved into a section where the, it really narrowed down and it was the double track and it just was such a bottleneck that that wasn't really going to happen anymore. Um, I thought it was a little bit safer. I actually had brought that up to the race organizers. And I think that next year they're thinking about, or at least something that was brought up or talked about, was separating the um, people that were going to race from people that were just going to ride.
0: I think that's Um, an excellent idea, because I brought it up to them as well, and I initially said... You know, Maybe there's a way to, because I told them, I said, look, I, 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 it was really uncomfortable when those blue riders came through. Right. Is there a way to send the blue riders right. first? And they said, we can't do that because we've got the pro riders in the black race. So we can't have the pros going through the blue uh, group. Which totally makes sense. I get that. Um, But yeah, I I agree with you. I think if there was a way to to get people to voluntarily sort themselves into riding and racing where, you know, your time is still going to be your time. So if you put yourself in the riding group, but you're still counted with the racing group then I, I think that would probably go a long way to helping prevent that kind of uh, fear factor. And again, it was really just a fear factor because I didn't see any crashes. I didn't hear of any crashes. And um, it was pretty brief. It, it was all of about five minutes, and then it was all sorted, and everything right. was fine.
2: Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it definitely, I, I hear you, and I think it was uncomfortable for ev- you know, everyone that was involved. And it's definitely something that they're aware of, yeah. um, it sounds like. And it, the, you know, the other thing that to consider is that, um, one of their goals with this race, and that's why there was no like aid stations where they did bottle hand ups for the pros or not was to make it so that there was like no team, um, like no team tactics, right. Where all the feed zones were completely neutral. So like you didn't have a, a feed car, um, giving, you know, or a follow car or certain people, uh, like the things that you see in the big road races, Right. the goal was. Not have that. Everybody had to get off their bike and fill up their own water bottle, whether they were the fastest man or like the the slowest man. Right, um,
0: right. Um, so, the other thing I wanted to comment on about the beginning was the temperature. So uh, I don't know how you felt, days. but I was so cold <laughs> it took me quite yeah. a while. Um, but I don't want people to think that they need to layer up because the fact of the matter was is. It only lasted maybe an hour before I was really much more comfortable. But while I was cold, I was really uncomfortable. I was really cold. But I did hear at a couple of the aid stations that they were taking clothes. So you could have handed in clothes and then picked them up at the finish, which is uh-huh. not something they advertised very well. Had they advertised that, mm-hmm. I think I would have dressed warmer so that I wouldn't have been so uncomfortable right at the beginning.
2: Yeah, Um I completely agree. We were freezing. Um, we we actually stayed close to the mountain. So we we drove in knowing that um we didn't wanna have we didn't wanna have all of those clothes on um and we didn't wanna do a downhill warm up because we knew where well, we were just gonna get colder. Um and the beauty of parking, you know, in town away from the race site is then we had a car at the end of the day to like change into and be around because Alan like, Alan had to be around all afternoon with um, you know, sponsors and stuff like that for the for the pro race. Um, but you know, we always have this this thing that we say to each other, which is be bold, start cold, knowing that it was gonna be you know eighty five, ninety degrees, dusty, hot, no shade, and you're gonna be hot most of the day, Really being uh, thoughtful about what you wear in the beginning, which for me was full finger gloves because uh, my hands get really cold. Um, arm warmers and a vest. And then those are all things that are really easy to take off and put back on in the event that you're going to do a descent. When you're starting to think about things like full jackets, um, you know, is it, is it going to give you that much more warmth? It's something that you're going to have to carry around that might be twice the size of a vest and, um, uh, is more difficult to take on and put off when, when you're racing. If you're stopping, it's totally like that is less of a big deal, but. Um that's exactly what I did. Exactly.
0: I had full finger gloves, arm warmers and a vest and I shed I shed the arm warmers and the vest after an hour and a half or two hours and basically had mm-hmm. to in my pockets the rest of the day and was comfortable. Uh, so like yeah. you, uh, it was really just a matter of getting through that first hour to two where it was really cold and then it warmed up and it was mm-hmm. fine the rest of the day. Um, so you mentioned the beauty of the course, I echo that, I thought it was just spectacular. Uh, the course was just fantastically designed. The eight stations were well-placed and I thought incredibly stocked with the most amazingly helpful volunteers. Um,
2: agreed
0: yeah I've uh, not one to usually eat peanut butter sandwiches at aid stations but I found myself gorging on them on this particular day Uh, I found them to be quite tasty and uh, I know you didn't do it as part of the blue course but we had to do this corkscrew climb uh, late in the day and at the top of that they were handing out popsicles which uh, was a real treat Making your way through the Blue Course, uh, I um, saw the uh, takeoff to uh, go back to the finish. I don't know what that uh, ride was like, though. So how did it go after you left the Black Course and headed back into town? Was there anything technical or challenging about that?
2: So um, when we left the Black Course, it was, we started up like a long climb. And I think that this was about at between mile like 75 and 85. Um, And it was this long, hot climb that that's personally where I kind of fell apart, Uh, you know, just like the way that you fall apart when you race for a hundred miles. But the nice thing is there was an aid station right at the top and I was hungry and I ate and I got some coffee and I felt much better. Um, a nice descent into this, another area of, um, uh, like basically double track through, what was probably like wilderness and a hiking area. I saw some, uh, I saw some people coming up with their, like, you know, old lane cruisers with the snorkel and the off-roading set up. Um, and it was again, you know, technical for the gravel rides that I've done. Um, uh, not technical like mountain biking or anything, but, you know, big rocks, like four inch rocks in places. So you really had to like keep your eyes open? Um, you know, uh, break appropriately, uh, cause it was a little bit downhill, but it was just gorgeous. we were like along a riverbed, there were huge trees and it really felt like you were out like in nature, not, you know, in the middle of a field or in the middle of the, uh, the city or something like that. It was just, was a totally, I haven't been, I haven't raced a race, um, like on a road bike where I've been so in the middle of the wilderness.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, to me, that was the scenery and just how remote the whole thing was. To not have to worry about cars all day long uh, was just sensational. I will say that after the takeoff, after you guys left the course, the black course, Mm -hmm. really, that was the biggest grind. Uh, We had at that point, I want to say, 20 miles of just sort of rolling climb Followed by the mm-hmm. last sort of big kom we had to do, which was like a eight mile climb. Uh, it, it was not like super steep or anything, but it was just eight miles of climbing, and uh, on gravel that that's pretty significant. And um, once you right, to and the, at this
2: point it's it's probably like one o'clock, two o'clock. Oh morning. yeah, yeah, it was but hot. The it, sun is just yeah. beating down, which is which is beautiful. You yeah. know, it was it was great, but that's like that's really when the suffer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I mean, for for me as a triathlete who spends a lot of time on my bike, you know, I was great at the climbing. I would climb and pass people continuously. But as soon as I got to the top of a hill, all these guys would go by me on the descents because that's just oh, not done. my thing. Descending on a gravel bike is not my thing. I'm not comfortable at high speeds on I, gravel where I don't know how the bike handles, especially on the any time where it became like corduroy. But uh, my take-homes from the whole thing were that it was spectacular. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. It was a terrific workout. If I was going to go back yeah. and do it again, I'm super happy that I did the black course, but I would do the blue course next time because uh, the the part of the course uh, that was added on to get the 140 miles, I, I don't really need to do. I think that the blue course sounds like it was uh, a very much of a challenge and, and, and uh, would have been just fine but for somebody who is looking at this race for the first time or is really looking for a big challenge I think the black horse doing it just once is certainly um, definitely something that they should consider because it really was terrific. Um, any final thoughts on the on the ride or the race uh, and any sort of last-minute tips that you would uh, think to add?
2: You know um, I thought it was awesome I- I'm, I hope to go back again next year. Um, I don't know if I'll do blue or black, totally depends, but, um, the things that I would think about too, if you're not somebody that's into a bunch of gravel racing or riding, um, is, uh, at least practicing some descending and some cornering, um, in on dirt, because it is, it's really different from riding on and descending, um, on asphalt. Uh, and so, um, there, you know, there's YouTube where you can watch like tips and tricks to how to corner. I know Lee McCormack with Lee Likes Bikes has a lot of stuff um, and even a book that he's published about it. Um, and I think that that might be a helpful way to increase confidence and safety. And then uh, tire selection uh, is huge. That's something that I've kind of learned this year is like, oh, wow, that there's a whole science to what you would want to use um, in this type of scenario. I ran 38s, uh, like a, just a 38 gravel tire, um, and they were they were great.
0: Yeah, and I want to echo that. I, I had 35s, and uh, also the type of bike is really important. I mean, you cannot ride a road bike on this. There's just no way. You need to have some kind of, – like I have a bike that doubles – my travel bike doubles as a road bike, but it accommodates gravel tires. So I was able to ride a road – geometry with gravel tires. If you can do that, then right. you're great. But you really do need a, a some kind of gravel setup in order to ride this right because the roads are just you cannot do it on 25 millimeter tires. It's just not possible. No, um,
2: and be miserable.
0: Yeah, and I agree with you. YouTube is a great resource, not just for learning how to do some of this stuff, but also the SBT Gravel folks put up some really helpful videos about the course. And uh, I actually suggested to them after the race, you know, they named a lot of the sections of the course, and the signage on the course was phenomenal. There was never any question of getting lost. You always knew exactly where you were going. But I oh, would yeah. have thought it would have been very helpful to actually put on the course, a sign that would have indicated, oh, you're now entering this segment, you know, the segment that I'd watched on the YouTube video several times, because to watch right. it on the video was kind of out of context. But if I was writing and saw, hey, this is section, you know, this is the Roca I-95 section, then I would have been like, oh, right. yeah, I remember watching that on the video. So... Um, but yeah I agree with you terrific day terrific course highly recommend it Uh, registration is supposed to open once again for next year in December and uh, if you're at all thinking about this uh, I definitely suggest you get on board early because it will sell out once again very quickly Uh, Catherine Eastley Krugoff is an emergency physician and very avid cyclist who lives in Boulder thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today I really appreciate it
2: thank you so much
0: And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. Don't forget to check out and subscribe to the Tri-Doc Coaching YouTube channel. There, you'll find a video to my experience at the recent 70.3 Ironman World Championships in Nice, France, as well as other triathlon-related content. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.try.coaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services I provide. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. Those links are in the show notes. I you all the, that I can at the music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with another personality from triathlon, and the triathlete Rutauf will be back with another review of another triathlon race on the WTC calendar. Until then, train
1: hard, train healthy.